I'm happy to tell you that the Sheila Story's full collection is now available as a novel on Amazon. To find the book, go to your Amazon marketplace and type The Sheila Stories by Patrick Kelly into the search bar. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get everyone back up to speed, in our last episode, we heard the story Sean Riker. And during this story, Sheila became reacquainted with Sean Riker, a childhood friend who had lost his leg in the war. And in the process of trying to help Sean, Sheila started a broader program to help disabled soldiers from other military hospitals around Sydney. Now, in today's story, which is titled A Writer by Training, Sheila will meet Jesse Flynn, an officer in the American Army who is a war journalist for the Stars and Stripes. And we will also learn what is to become of Thomas's relationship with Lieutenant Chris. A Writer by Training Sheila hung up the phone and consulted her list. She sat at a desk in an administrative office at Engleburn, an army camp on the southwestern outskirts of Sydney. She had crossed off six items for the next day's field trip, but had many more to go. Meet with the volunteer coordinators. Lock down the Americans' participation. Find another army bus, etc., 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 Two of the other three desks in the office were empty. Irene sat across from Sheila. She had straight black hair, always wore red lipstick, and was a gossip. Her desk faced the open doorway, and she liked to report aloud the comings and goings of anyone of interest. Don't look now, but there's a yank headed our way. Not bad looking. Not bad at all. Sheila turned to open the side file drawer so she could glance at the hallway. Sure enough, an American and a receptionist walked toward them. You could tell he was a Yank from his uniform, which was lighter weight and brighter colored than the Australians. Judging by the hat in his hand, he was an officer. The receptionist stopped, pointed toward their office, and returned in the direction they had come. The Yank strode toward them. I'm searching for Sheila McKechnie, he said from the doorway. Irene sighed and shook her head. That's me, said Sheila. Excellent. He offered his hand for her to shake. I've been wandering around the base for 20 minutes. I'm bad with directions. He laughed about getting lost. His face was dominated by an enormous smile, and she found herself smiling with him. He had the darkest eyes, and they locked onto hers as if trying to read her thoughts. Then he quickly observed points of interest in the room. Irene, the papers on their desks, and the view from the window. Her face grew warm from his attention. Who was he? How can I help you? she said. I've heard wonderful things about you, he said. He picked a chair up from the next desk and carried it over. Not across from her, but next to her three feet away. He sat in the chair as relaxed as if he were in his own kitchen. 
About me, she said. His movements were fluid, his arms and legs graceful, like a dancer or an actor. He raised his eyebrows at the confusion on her face. Oh, I'm Jesse Flynn. I need your help. Maybe he was from one of the other hospitals and had heard about the disabled outings program. Are you a doctor? she asked. Me? Oh, no. No, Nothing so useful. I'm a writer by training. I'm here to interview you about your work. Interview me? For the Stars and Stripes, he said. You see, when I joined the Army, they soon realized I couldn't fight for beans. But I was good with words, so they gave me a typewriter instead of a gun. They even made me an officer. Isn't that hilarious? And then his big grin came back, the perfect white teeth. Irene laughed, and he nodded at her, as if glad she got the punchline. He was a war reporter. He'd spent two years out in the field, on the front lines in New Guinea, the Solomons, and Leyte Island. The Army had pulled him back to Sydney for a break, and he was writing a human interest story about the disabled program. How did you first get into it? he asked. His pen moved on the pad of paper in his lap, some sort of shorthand, but he maintained eye contact the whole time, as if his hands were self-directed. It started with my friend Sean Riker, she said. We had surfed together as kids. She went on to describe how the program had grown to incorporate activities beyond surfing, sailing, cricket matches, and day tours to places of interest. Her commanding officer had arranged financing, assigned more personnel to the project, and brought in the Americans. This is great stuff, said Jesse. I'd really like to join one of your outings, interview some of the guys. Well, we're going to the races at Randwick tomorrow, if you want to tag along. Excellent, he said. The big smile reappeared. Give me a job to do. I want to be part of the action. She couldn't have asked for a nicer day. A cold front dropped temperatures into the ideal range, and the sun burst through the clouds about the time they reached the track. They sat in the lower level of the enclosed stands, 50 soldiers and half as many volunteers, divided into five groups. The volunteers ran for beers and food and placed bets. The soldiers had all kinds of disabilities, broken or missing limbs, disfiguring scars, impaired senses of sight and sound. But despite their infirmities, they could still have fun, laughing, flirting with the Awas girls, and screaming for their horses to win. She rotated from group to group to make fine-tuning adjustments, injecting a smile here, posing for a photograph with a soldier there, all the while monitoring logistics. Jesse Flynn was assigned the job of bet-taker, He wore a fedora, cocked at a crazy angle, and fired up the energy of his group. All right, guys, get your bets in, get your bets in. Six minutes to post. Last call. What do you got, Steiner? Two bucks on lucky cousin to win? Got it. What about you, Hatch? Come on, come on, give me the money. Two bucks on Arbuckle? He's a long shot. You realize that? Thirty-two to one. All right, it's your money. Here I go, guys, back in a flash. A few minutes later, he stood in the aisle next to his group to call the finish. She watched from a few rows up. At the turn, we've got the favorite lucky cousin in the lead by a length. Second place is Blue-Eyed Susie. Next up are Laureate, Main Topic, and T-Rose. The rest of the field struggles a few lengths back. 
A horse breaks out from the stragglers. Can't see the number. Nothing too exciting. Looks like lucky cousin all the way. Wait a minute. What's this? The breakout horse is narrowing the gap with the lead group. He's lightning. The bit in his mouth. Crazy fast. Who's that? Arbuckle. It's Arbuckle. Hatch rose from his seat, his crutch aloft. Come on. Come on. Run. They're at the stretch, said Flynn. It's lucky cousin, blue-eyed Susie and Laureate. But Arbuckle's coming on strong. He's closing. He's in third. More soldiers stood, all rooting for Arbuckle now. Hatch grabbed the soldier next to him and hopped on his good leg. Approaching the finish. It's lucky cousin. Arbuckle blows by blue-eyed Susie. He's almost a lucky cousin. He's there. They're neck and neck. Lucky cousin. Lucky cousin. Approaching the line. And it's Arbuckle by a nose. Arbuckle. Arbuckle wins. 32 to 1. Hatch is the winner. Hatch is the winner. Sheila cheered. Flynn jumped, his arms extended. He turned and saw her, that big grin on his face. The group went crazy, leaping, screaming. Everyone wanted a piece of Hatch. They leaned across the aisles. One guy fell. Everyone laughed. Beers on Hatch, someone yelled. And then it became a chorus. Beers on Hatch. Beers on Hatch. Flynn ran up the aisle to her, grabbed her by the upper arm, and shouted above the noise, This is great. You've made magic. I can't wait to write the story. Later, on the drive back to the hospital camp, Flynn rode in the front seat next to Sheila. The soldiers were quiet behind them, many napping, the others watching the Sydney suburbs through the open windows. The bus hit a bump and everyone jostled. What a great day. Very few wrinkles. And the Arbuckle win? She could hardly have written a better ending. And it was more than the work. It was also Flynn. He made everything more exciting. Life was a party with Jesse around. He turned to her, the infectious smile gone for once. This may sound inappropriate, he said, but I'll say it anyway. What? she asked. If you didn't wear that wedding band, I'd ask you to show me more of Sydney, just the two of us, on our own outing. Sheila glanced at her ring. Oh, I'm not married. I mean, I'm a widow. My husband died, was killed. I'm sorry, he said. She shook her head. It happened two years ago in New Guinea, the Battle of the Beaches. What outfit, he asked. 18th Brigade. His eyes widened. Legendary, he said, the 18th. They were decimated. Mixed feelings hit her. The hollowness of Colin's death, but something else, too, a tingle of excitement. She wore the ring partly to remember Colin, but also to distance suitors. She'd never wanted to meet someone new in that way, at least not until Jesse. I just kept wearing the ring, she said. I understand. But if you want to see more of Sydney, I know a few good spots. Over the next month, they went out a couple times a week. She showed him around, the Royal Botanic Gardens, the Flower Market, Manly Beach, and other places. He was different from Colin. Colin was steady and focused. And Jessie was all about excitement and change. With Colin, she had felt grounded in the faith that hard work and determination would bring success. With Jessie, every day brought adventure, new frontiers to be explored. Neither was better or worse than the other. They each challenged her in their own way. One day, they rented a small motorboat and rowed past the harbor bridge to Bradley's Head. They tied up to a public dock and walked to a tiny beach. 
Ferry boats passed on their way to and from Circular Quay. Sailboats frolicked here and there. A few fat clouds floated in the azure sky, and a light breeze carried the fresh scent of open water. She had brought picnic supplies, and Jessie had brought wine. They spread a blanket on the sand, and she unpacked lunch. The city looked small from where they sat. Sitting on the blanket, he seemed relaxed, as always. He wore a bathing suit and a blue shirt with one button buttoned. What a view, he said. Yes, the city is lovely from here. His eyes said she was the most important thing in the world. I wasn't talking about the city or the harbor. I was talking about you. She studied her hands as they fiddled with the sandwich wrapping. Don't say those things. You'll make me blush. I leave for the Philippines next week, he said. Back to the front. They want me to cover beach landings. She put down her sandwich and pulled her hands into her lap. No, not again. Not another man to the front. But that's not fair, she said. You just got here. I've been back two months. Tell them to send someone else. Someone who hasn't covered the front lines yet. Her throat tightened. She tried swallowing. His lips turned up ever so slightly. Not a smile, at least not one of his, but not a frown either, as if they just had to accept this. They like my work, he said, shrugging, and it's my job. That's where the story is. You volunteered, you jerk. No, but I didn't fight it. Besides, it's not like I'll go in the first wave. You would if you could, but they won't let you, so you'll go with the second wave or the third. I'll be all right. She blinked and blinked, but a tear slid through anyway. So, is this goodbye? You won't come back to Sydney, will you? Her teeth clamped on her lower lip, and she inhaled through her nose, struggling. Do you want me to come back? Yes, you bastard. I want you to come back. I want to have a picnic here on this spot, on a day not clouded with the fear of your going to war. I will come back, he said. Promise me. I can't, uh, promise. Promise to stay safe. Don't go in the first wave or the second wave or the third. Wait until they make you go. Don't be a hero. Explosions all look the same. They all sound the same. Report from a distance. He leaned toward her, his lips close. Promise me, she said. He kissed her, a light touch. Promise me, you bastard, she kissed him back. Stop calling me that, he said. Promise me, she nibbled on his lip, biting a little harder than playful. Okay, okay, I promise. I promise I'll come back. That night, she leaned on the counter of the kitchen and talked to her mother. The ceiling fixture cast the room in a soft, warm light. I feel guilty, she said, while twisting her wedding ring. What on earth for, said Mary. Colin is gone, and I'm still here. And now... I'm falling in love with someone else. Mary shook her head. That's crazy thinking. Look at me. You know Colin would want you to be happy. Yes. And it's been two years. You deserve this. Oh, God, and now he's going off to war. How can I be happy now? Mary hugged her. Don't worry. He'll come back to you. I know he will. Later, before she got in bed... She stood in front of her bureau, kissed her wedding ring, 
and placed it inside her jewelry case. That was a pretty good story, I say to Chris, don't you think? The girls seem to love the horse race scene. We're standing in the kitchen. She won't join me in the porch anymore, says it's too hard to sit there as friends. She's four feet from me. A charged field exists between us. I can almost hear it crackling. Her usual relaxed, confident stance has fled. The muscles in her arms and shoulders are tense. Great story, she says. I learned a lot. I hope you did. I'm not sure what you mean, I say. You know exactly what I mean. She eyes my left hand. You never wore a wedding ring, did you? I glance at my bare finger. How did she figure that out? No, Julie didn't care for jewelry. If you had worn a wedding ring, it would still be on your finger. Oh, she takes a step closer. The charge of the field intensifies. Sparks will fly at any moment. Sheila waited two years, Chris says, and then she met someone new. She opened her heart to possibility. Don't tell me you're not attracted to me. I know you are. It's time for you to move on. Her eyes soften and the tension leaves her. The charged field between us neutralizes, and the crackling dims to silence. You can do it, she says. No, I can't. You have to. I can't. After a brief pause, she turns and goes to the sink. She picks up a sponge and wipes an already clean counter. When she turns back to me, her eyes are tense again. I need a favor, she says. Sure, anything. I need you to help me with the rent. That's surprising. Chris is good with money. She drives a modest car even though she makes a great living. Of course. Tell me what you need. I'm moving out tomorrow. What? I'm going to live with my parents, she says. Imagine that. The 33-year-old boomerang. I'll pay them 300 a month and want you to lower my rate that much until you lease the apartment. For Pete's sake, you don't have to move out. Her lips tremble. I can't do it, Thomas. Friends, I can't do it. She looks back toward the girls' room. I don't know if I'm in love with you yet, but I sure love the girls. Her voice cracks. And the longer I stay, the deeper I get. The trembling has moved to her chin. I take a step toward her, but she shakes her head. I want to hold her to make the trembling go away. If I could clone myself, I could love Julie and Chris at the same time. I wish you well, she says. I hope someday. She straightens her shoulders, and the confidence returns to her voice. But I can't wait for you. I can't take the risk. She leaves the kitchen with resolve in her step, and I know she won't come back. For a fleeting moment, I wonder if maybe... Just maybe, I've made the worst decision of my life. When the girls learn of Chris's departure, the summer day turns icy. They won't speak to me. They shut themselves in their room for two hours, probably watching a movie. 
Laughter and another voice come through the door. They're Skyping with someone. Who? Chris? I tiptoe to the doorway. No, it's their grandmother Maggie, Julie's mother. She lives in Virginia. April's voice sounds okay. Natalie doesn't say much. Later, they go outside on the porch. I ask if they want me to set up a yard game. No. Natalie is on her laptop. They want to spend the afternoon at a friend's house across town. I call the friend's mother. She'd love to have Natalie and April over. She asks if the girls can stay for dinner, too. Yeah, okay. We skip the story that night. Natalie says she's too tired. When I ask if they are sure, April hesitates, and I sense Natalie has ordered the cold front. I don't push the matter, because I'm certain time is on my side. Sure enough, the next night, April comes to get me on the porch. They are ready for a story. When I get to the room, Natalie sits in her bed with her arms crossed. I have told her many times, when people are angry, the only solution is to keep talking. She knows if she doesn't say something, I will. I'm mad at you, she says. Very, very mad. Okay. Chris is my friend. She was teaching me about makeup and clothes. We even talked about boys, and you made her go away. My mind forms the words. Defensive words. Denial. Blame. Who did what to whom. The words rush to my tongue, anxious to break free, but I restrain them. I stammer. Ah, I can see you're angry with me. Duh. I did not want Chris to go, I say, but it is my fault that she left. Why did she leave? Did you hurt her? I hurt her feelings. I am sitting at the foot of April's bed, and her head pivots between Natalie and me as our words fly back and forth. She twists a strand of her hair and says, How did you hurt Chris's feelings? It's complicated, I say. Natalie retorts, You always say that when you don't want to tell the truth. I search for the right words. I don't want to say too much, but I've got to say something. Since your mother died, I've become awkward around women. Sometimes I don't know what to say or I say the wrong things. The girls devour my words. You might say I'm broken in the ways of the heart. Natalie continues to stare but the fire in her eyes is banked. The hard set of her chin grows softer. I imagine my words reverberating through her thoughts. She purses her lips. If she asks a question, I'll have to go deeper, explain more than I want. Things like the rules of baseball and loneliness and the spirit of her mother, who lives on in my heart. But I don't have to go there. For April rescues me when she breathes a heavy sigh and says, Let's hear the next story. Okay, that's the end of the episode of Writer by Training, and we've covered a lot of ground. During this story, Sheila meets the American Jesse Flynn and soon develops feelings for him. But then, Jesse is redeployed to the field to cover the fighting in the Philippines. Now, of course, the the narrator of the stories, Thomas, is American, as are his daughters 
and the tenant, Chris. But in Sheila's world, this is our first encounter with an American character. I got curious about the presence of Americans in Australia during World War II and did a little research on that subject. Now, to, to give us the background, the Japanese landed in the Philippines on December 8, 1941, the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. At the time, there were Americans stationed to the Philippines under the command of General Douglas MacArthur. The Japanese quickly advanced on the Americans, and after three months of fighting, MacArthur was ordered by President Roosevelt to evacuate the Philippines and go to Australia. Now, American troops had already begun to arrive in Australia, and over the course of the war, they were a continuous sight on the streets of major cities. One article I found stated that by 1943, there were 250,000 Americans stationed in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Another source reported that over the course of the war, nearly a million Americans came through Australia at one time or another. Now, our story today takes place in late 1944. So it's really no big surprise that Sheila should meet an American officer at this time of the war. During the episode, we also had a major development in the relationship between Thomas and Chris. They reached the point of irreconcilable differences, and Chris has left. There is something about Thomas's past and, and we've, we've several times during the stories, he's referenced taking a vow. Uh, we don't know exactly what that's all about, but it does appear that it is preventing him from entering into a serious relationship with Chris. And now, of course, from her perspective, her, her feelings for Thomas have grown to the point where she can't just stay there as friends. And that's what's led to her leaving the house. Now, in the next episode, we will hear the story Honor Ride, in which Sheila will continue to manage the entertainment program for injured soldiers, and she will wait for news of Jesse Flynn. Now, if I can, I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing. If you like the narrative style of the Sheila stories, then sign up for my newsletter and get a free copy of my first novel, The Entrepreneurs, Joe Robbins Book One. And this novel is a thriller which features finance executive Joe Robbins, who must catch a killer or be killed. The Entrepreneurs has 4.7 stars on Amazon. You can get the free novel and the newsletter on my website at patrickkellystories.com. That's Kelly with one E, patrickkellystories.com. And the novel that you get, the free, the free download, that will work for your Kindle, iPad, Nook, or any other ebook reading device. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.